This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. We know that historically about 90% of patients are not going to be surgical candidates immediately or in the near term. So hospitals historically have oftentimes focused just on the surgical volume because the margins are attractive and it feeds their medical staff. But to really have a comprehensive spine program, it requires a robust and well-coordinated non-surgical care. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Trevor Duran. Today, I'm pretty excited because this is the start of a few weeks of conversations where we get to dive into some service line level detail. I can't go very deep into service line detail myself. So to help me do that today, I have our experts in neurosciences and spine, Patrick Vega and Kate Zentner to help me. Kate, why don't you get us started? Just give us kind of the landscape for spine care, because that's where we're going to focus today. Sure, Trevor. Spine care continues to be a pretty high priority area for many of our members, but they're facing some pressures from a lot of different angles, whether it's coming from payers, employers, patients, physicians, or even beyond that. Just to name a couple of them, number one, competition certainly hasn't gotten any less fierce over time, particularly as we think about those surgical volumes, as this tends to be a little bit more of a commercial-leaning patient population, so it's attractive to health systems. But at the same time, there continues to be this push for conservative management, cost reduction, and we're also seeing some pressure around site of care selection for procedures as that outpatient and ambulatory shift begins to accelerate. Just to give you one example, as of July of this year, we now have prior authorization required by Medicare if we're doing cervical fusion with disectomies, spinal neurostimulators, when done in a hospital outpatient setting. For some, this might mean that the ambulatory center now becomes more of that path of least resistance. For all of these, part of what's going to support some of the trends that we mentioned here more broadly are innovation and technology. Think about things like less invasive approaches, advanced anesthesia techniques. And in the future, I think we're probably going to be seeing the role of things like AI, augmented reality, really growing to help support patient selection, treatment planning, and execution, especially for things like complex cases. Beyond that, we have to acknowledge that the opioid crisis and increased focus on pain management continues to be a challenge. So always top of mind for programs. A lot of this isn't really new. It's more so that it's exacerbated, especially in the light of the pandemic, whether it's elevated economic challenges, heightened complexity among those pain patients where some of the management may have backslid a little bit over the last year and a half. So with all of that, probably wondering a little bit about what that means for growth and demand. At SG2, we would actually forecast that there still is going to be a growth opportunity in a lot of markets when it comes to spine surgery as a whole across the decade. Once we get past the next year or two, especially as we see that population aging, we see obesity being a challenge. So there are going to be some spines out there that are degenerating. Some of them are going to need a heavier duty intervention at some point. The point is the program that you're going to need in order to really capture that and manage that is going to look a little bit different than it once did. Patrick, with that in mind, what are hospitals and health systems trying to do around spine? Kate talked about some industry forces. Some of those, to me, seem like they might be in contradiction to a hospital and health system's goals around spine. A lot of hospitals and health systems really historically have delivered what I would just call spine services. They have spine surgery. They have maybe pain management. 
maybe they have physiatry or what many know as physical medicine and rehabilitation. But really, hospitals and health systems, with the emergence of the integrated delivery network, the organization delivery and improvement of spine services has become more complex as a result of that, because it's not just a single hospital that services are being delivered. They're being delivered oftentimes over a broad geographic area, and they may include in the system of care services that aren't even owned or managed by the hospital, where they're reliant on a pain management specialist in a fully private practice and a physiatrist in a full private practice. Additionally, hospitals want to enhance the patient experience. We know that one of the number one factors in terms of growing incremental volume for cases is good word of mouth by patients. So if they have a good experience, then they tend to talk about that to other people and influence referrals. If they have a bad one, same thing happens. Hospitals also want to engage and improve the physician experience in discussions with many hospitals that I work with really on issues of cost and quality. They're tends to continue to be a fair amount of distrust between the medical staff and administration in terms of leadership, decision-making, allocation of resources. Another area is really improving access and retention. Kate and I have talked about this along with some of her colleagues over the years, that having access to services is so critical to patients. And the internet has really helped that improve, but still it can be a very daunting and discouraging experience trying to get relief for back pain. And back pain can be one of the most debilitating and one of the most prevalent conditions. Development of comprehensive spine, especially non-surgical spine. We know that historically about 90% of patients are not going to be surgical candidates immediately or in the near term. So hospitals historically have oftentimes focused just on the surgical volume because the margins are attractive and it feeds their medical staff. But to really have a comprehensive spine program, it requires a robust and well-coordinated non-surgical care. I think the only other thing I'd point out, Patrick, is that what programs want for spine and sort of what makes it high priority and how it's going to look, it's going to differ a little bit depending on who you are. Someone very much in a fee-for-service world is going to need something that looks a little bit different. The motivation is going to be a little bit different from somebody who is taking on a real risk and for whom everything is a cost center. I've heard the very simple saying that the best predictor of if someone's going to need back surgery is if they've had back surgery before. It seems like payers know that. It's kind of a driver behind some of those industry forces Kate talked about. And then health systems are still focused on growth and building comprehensive programs and opening up access for patients. But systems have been working on that for a while. Patrick, what are some continued challenges that are holding health systems back from being where they want to be in spine care? Planning and execution. So planning either a de novo design where you're just going from scratch and you're doing spine care, but you really want to expand that in terms of scope and quality is very difficult. When I talk to people at the hospital level, it seems that everybody already has 140% of a job. It's really about having defined leadership, both in the planning and execution. And even without COVID, it can be very challenging. So that would just a kind of a caveat there to set some context. The second thing, and, and this is still a challenge, and that is a lack of a service line vision, meaning that there's sufficient consensus in terms of the system structure resources and elements of a spine program, that there's enough consistency and support for a common vision. What we've seen with hospitals is that they'll have a dominant physician or two who 
tend to want to dictate their vision of services, which is a great thing, and you need their investment, enthusiasm, and assertiveness. On the other hand, if you pull those other folks in, whether it's operations, other medical staff, non-surgical physicians, uh, even administrative folks, and create a vision of what those services would look like so that everybody who's involved and is going to be asked to put their shoulder to the wheel on this feels like their signature is on it in some form. Nobody has to see 100% of their vision, but they must see a sufficient amount to say, I can get behind this. Arriving at a hospital where I was essentially a project manager many years ago, they had a very, very strong spine service in terms of surgical volume. And this is well before there was much appreciation for the non-surgical components but a very, very strong surgical volume. The hospital had engaged with one of the vendors, and this was in the days when vendors could actively and substantially monetarily support development of these kind of services. And that support from the vendor had been secured by three orthopedic surgeons. And what I quickly found out was while they had sought and received this funding from the vendor, it was the neurosurgeons who had really the bulk of the volume. The program prior to my arrival was really focused on orthopedic surgeons' visions and what they wanted in terms of their preferences programmatically. What I was advised that I really needed to cater to the neurosurgeons as well, so to give them equitable opportunity to input their vision and what they wanted to see happen. The bottom line was that nobody was perfectly happy, but everybody was sufficiently happy in terms of the whole process over the course of six months, and we saw some substantial incremental surgical volume. We saw some real collaboration and coordination of care in terms of standardizing the care through pre- and post-operative order sets to make sure that the care was routinely best practice. It was really stepping back before we step forward in terms of engaging with all of the surgeons, not just the most prominent ones, but with all of the surgeons to ensure that there was going to be support not only initially, but when it came time to making upgrades further down the line. Good story. Kate, how about you? You can have a few of these elements and sometimes they work great. Sometimes there's challenges like Patrick outlined. Give us an example of a place where you've seen it go well, kind of key elements that you've seen that are essential for these programs to work well. Sure. I think it's probably pretty important to acknowledge that this isn't overnight. Some of the programs I know we've spoken to who are very strong now, they have super strong surgical volume. It's operative. It's not operative. It's integrated. They've seen a lot of growth. They had a lot of fits and starts before that. And it took them 10 plus years to build the trust, to get the right team in place, have all the processes, the support structures in place. If you set yourself up correctly, you can probably get things to happen incrementally a little bit more quickly, but it may not be immediate. So patience is a recipe for success. I think one great example where surgery has all been brought under the same house is Northwestern. I know their physician leaders have talked a lot about how that was really important for them to be able to do in order to really facilitate the collaboration. Now, others are more virtual, but they might be connected by common processes and requirements. So you might have a centralized intake and triage process. I know we've talked about Innova, who's done a lot of that work. Uh, Mayfield Clinic as well got those processes in place many years ago and, and, and really kind of figuring out what happens when we're first seeing a patient. How do we get them to that initial uh, first point? Is it going to be with a physiatrist maybe or a surgeon right away? if they don't get through that red flag exam. So there's a lot of thought you have to put into it. That's a big part at the beginning. 
Some programs have required that providers are 100% dedicated to spine. Maybe you're not referred to as an ortho or neurosurgeon, you're a spine surgeon. Everybody's not going to do that though. It could even be something more simple, maybe even getting your newer clinicians introduced and working together when it's appropriate, if there is that divide that needs to be bridged. And then finally, especially for complex spine, we've seen some implement sort of a tumor board-like model where if a patient's deemed a candidate for surgery, they're sort of brought before this to be discussed in front of an interdisciplinary vote where everybody gets, or an interdisciplinary group where everybody gets an equal vote and come to a decision as to whether surgery is the best immediate option. And when we see this sort of tumor board model take place where we're assessing patients for surgery, about half the time, there might be something else that's better to try first. And you're also sort of getting that whole group to work together to make decisions together. There are a bunch of different ways that you can make that happen, whether it's physical locations, processes, but it may not be something that happens sort of immediately. Patrick and Kate, thanks. I love those practical examples. But when we're doing projects and work directly with members, often we're left at the kind of recommendation point of the project. What are some of those key recommendations that you often leave behind? And what do you want our listeners today to have some kind of the key takeaways as they think about growing and maximizing their spine program? For newer programs, I would sort of echo something that Patrick said earlier. You have to make sure that leadership is in place and that that vision is also established to guide everything else you're doing. So that's step number one. For more established programs that have perhaps more of the parts and pieces in place, I would recommend connecting the dots. How can we make things smoother for our patients, our upstream referral sources, and for our clinicians as well? And that's something that even the most advanced destination centers of excellence out there, we see continually working with, and there's always going to be something to improve there, whether you're at the beginning or you're a little bit more mature. Thanks, Kate. And thanks so much, Patrick, for sharing your expertise and experience with us and with our listeners today. Look forward to having you back on soon. This has been another episode of SG2 Perspectives. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and don't forget to rate and review. We'd love to hear from you. Please connect with us on LinkedIn or Twitter at SG2 Healthcare. You can also reach us via email at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Reach out and let us know what healthcare trends are most important to you. Please also listen and subscribe to our colleague, Dr. Tom Villanueva's Modern Practice Podcast, on Vizian's Medical Leadership Channel. Tom discusses key healthcare trends through the clinical leadership lens. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.